I just think for many people, especially younger people, that the the role of beauty um, can really be powerful. Yeah. To help people see, like the way I put it at the beginning of the book is, uh, remember the feeling when you wake up in the morning as a little boy and it suddenly hits you that it's Christmas morning. <laughs> Mm. or the first day of summer vacation and you think oh or remember when you're pursuing the person you love and you first realize wow they love me too okay think of that feeling and i'm i'm trying to say uh that's a little bit a little taste of what it feels like to believe in the resurrection of christ wow uh, after you've wrestled with a deconstruction or a nihilistic worldview because there really is despair and darkness in that worldview and I've stared down that well and seen that. And that is, gosh, again, I have compassion for the person wrestling there. But if you come back, as I have to say, there's really good reasons, solid reasons to believe in God and to believe in Christ. And boy, the sense of relief and joy at, the, at how much of a better story, more beautiful worldview that is, is infinite. My next guest is the senior pastor of First Baptist Church, Ojai, in California, a PhD from Fuller Seminary. He is a prolific writer, having seen a number of publications just in the last few years, including the forthcoming Why God Makes Sense in a World That Doesn't, The Beauty of Christian Theism, and another important one that we're probably going to mention today, Finding the Right Hills to Die On, The Case for Theological Triage. Go check out his whole uh, bibliography on his website, uh, where you can also find his personal writings on his blog, um, Soliloquium, uh, and uh, also go over to YouTube, which is what we're going to be talking about quite a bit today, where you can find him speaking, teaching, and debating on his YouTube channel, Truth Unites, where he has a healthy mix of apologetics and theology as he engages with people in Catholicism and Orthodox Christianity, um, and, and really a whole gamut there. It is with all of that in mind that I'm excited and honored to have on the show today, Dr. Gavin Ortland. Gavin, thank you so much for doing this. This is incredible. Hey, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Um, so getting ready to have you on, and, and, and I, you and I previously mentioned this, and the episodes are all out of order. I, I just re recently had Austin Suggs from Gospel Simplicity on who you guys have done some collaboration on YouTube and the whole point of his channel on YouTube is like going into Catholic situations, talking with Catholic priests, nuns, monastic figures, and then the same in uh, Orthodox Christianity. Um, and, and you're doing really similar stuff on YouTube with debates and conversations and content. That's really, really incredible. But um, when you look at your academic like preparation, um, I think I would have been surprised if I had known you before that to see what you're doing now, because um, like historic theology and things like that, um, and the studies that you did in, in there in college and PhD um, led you to this point. I, I came across this video on Crossway's website where you were talking about how Protestants have handled church history and, and our history and the history that we perceive to be mostly Catholic. And you said, all 2000 years of church history can be your theological community and you can have a sense and drawing from the entire tradition. I'm, I'm a pastor. I'm a professor. I'm a teacher as well as a podcaster and everything I do here. I'll be the first one to say Protestants really struggle 
uh, feeling like all of church history is, is their church history. And here you are now going into debates and conversations with similar to Austin, like people from um, the Catholic church, the Orthodox church, like how did studying church history and historic Christian theology get you to the point where now you're a YouTuber um, having debates and creating content that's, that's helping people navigate that world. Yeah, it's funny to think of myself as a YouTuber because I never would have yeah. used. Nobody ever likes that. calling themselves a YouTuber. I don't like calling myself like a social media influencer either, but here we are. Right, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. The um, entrance into dialogue with Catholic and Orthodox Christians really came as a surprise to me as well. Um, that wasn't something I really set out thinking I would do. But um, I think it all just started from my own learning and just my own fascination with church history. The, the real short version is when I was maybe late high school or early college, I came into contact with uh, Anselm, who's a medieval mm -hmm. theologian, and he came up with a, a really different and interesting and kind of bizarre argument for God's existence uh, called the ontological argument. And I remember just being really captivated, and I thought, this is such an interesting idea. And it kind of taught me, probably for the first time, just how fun it can be to think about an idea. Mm -hmm. <laughs> how interesting ideas can be. And so Anselm really became kind of a window into a whole different world. And I began to see there's so much else in Anselm beyond just this argument for God's existence. There's so much of a prayerful spirit to the way he does theology. And there were so many little differences to how he did theology than what I was used to. And it just pulled me in more and more. I always reference the scene in the movie, Mr. Holland's Opus, mm -hmm. where he describes how he fell in love with jazz music, oh, He's wow. describing how he got a CD, or I think this was back in the days of cassette tapes yeah. um, of John Coltrane. And he said, at yeah. first, I hated it. I couldn't stand it. So I kept listening to it. And then eventually I just couldn't stop listening to it. And eventually I knew what I wanted to do with my life. And it's that same thing of at first, something is so different and so kind of alien, like, and yet it pulls you in precisely because of that. So, and then along the way, I've just been drawn into questions like, well, how do I do that well as an evangelical Protestant without compromising my convictions? And that's led me to study the reformers and the original Protestants, a lot of the second generation Protestants, and the conviction that's been formed in me that one of my books is really all about is um, Protestantism isn't a new church. That's just not what Protestantism is or right. was conceived to be. It really was a renewal effort within the one true church so that there is no compromise in seeing our identity as Protestants as all 2000 years of church history. So that's a short overview of how, mm -hmm. kind of how the process started. And then, like I said, very much to my surprise, as I'm yeah. engaging on YouTube, it's kind of opened up different, various different doors, some right. apologetics and then some more like ecumenical dialogue. Yeah. Were you interested in apologetics and in, in like theology philosophy at all before the encounter with Anselm and the ontological argument? Because I, I can remember the moment in the, I think we called it theology 101 in my undergraduate where my professor explained the ontological argument. And I can sort of remember, I remember that scene from Mr. Holland's opus and that's a perfect way to describe it because nobody understands the ontological argument the first time they hear it. Yeah. Um, it, it, it's, 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 it, it, and it, the whole point of it is it kind of goes beyond like our faculties. Um, was that the moment for you that was just like, Hmm, I can't get this off my mind at all. Like, or, or, or did you have an inkling before that of like studying theology and, and things like that? 
that was probably the first time I can really remember being really mm. drawn into philosophy and ideas yeah. and just how interesting it can be. I mean, maybe there is that to some degree before, but yeah, it's that feeling whenever anybody hears this argument, usually um, their instinctive reaction is, oh, what a joke. Yeah, you know, you yeah. Surely you can't prove that God exists from the idea of God in the mind. Yeah. And, and Bertrand Russell's famous for saying, you know, it's easy to say that, but it's really hard to say why the argument doesn't mm-hmm. work. Yeah. And he has a funny story where he's talking about walking in the street in Oxford and, or no, riding his bike and he's holding a tin of tobacco and it suddenly hits him that the ontological argument is sound. And he said, mm-hmm. I threw the tobacco up in the air. <laughs> mm-hmm. And uh, yeah. I think a lot of people can relate to that. It's kind of this yeah. revelatory experience. Yeah. Also too, like there's a, in explaining how I feel explaining the ontological argument is the meme where the guy's pointing at the wall with all the papers and all the lines drawn in between the papers. And when you explain the ontological argument to somebody who's never heard it, you kind of feel like you're explaining a conspiracy theory or something just vastly unbelievable because the first time somebody hears it, like you mentioned, it's instinctual to just say, no, that's, the dumbest thing I've ever heard. But then, but then like three nights later, they're going to be lying in bed and they're going to go, wait a second, <laughs> hold on. Yeah. And that was it for me too. That's incredible. I, and I've, I've known so many people that, that that's it, but these, these classical arguments, and that's one of the things, really the major thesis of, of the newest book, um, why God makes sense in a world that doesn't is you revisiting many of these, what we consider to be the classical, uh, arguments. Um, and I, and I want to hear about that, but first, I feel like in the world that you're in now, you know, you've, you've, you've studied historical theology and church history. And then now, um, like you said, how unlikely is it that you'd be making YouTube videos and having to, I don't know if you edit your own stuff, but having to edit yourself into thumbnails with text next to your face and all these things. And it's all really a humbling thing. Um, but you're engaging quite often with Catholics. And, and I have found that as you've addressed and I, and I quoted you out of that video, it's like many times there is a fallacy that church history is really the history of the Catholic church and Protestant history started with Luther nailing the theses to the the cathedral door. And when we allow that thought to come into our minds, then, then really we don't have access to those classical arguments. They essentially become Catholic in thought. Um, Has it been interesting for you engaging with Catholics and and Orthodox as well and using philosophy that sometimes is identified as belonging to, quote, Catholic thinkers like uh, Thomas Aquinas um, and so many others, Anselm, you know, um, that unfortunately protestants have neglected over the years but really for you to engage with with the catholic church you have to be fluent in those thought systems yeah yes it's been a, a, an incredible learning experience and i would say mm-hmm. all of my books all of my videos all of that really does it's kind of simple actually i just mm-hmm. like to learn <laughs> yeah and the part of the best way for me to learn is not merely reading and absorbing information but then trying to put it into my own words. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of my videos, um, you know, I've kind of felt bad recently because I did like four videos criticizing Catholic or Orthodox views in a row, which yeah. is not what I typically like to do. I try to have a balance mm-hmm. to tr- retain a, a good tone of some criticism, but then also some common ground. But the problem was I was just learning about these topics <laughs> and I just wanted to get my thoughts out there. And so, yeah, I, I think that 
Protestants should engage in kind of ecumenical dialogue for many reasons, but one of them is simply, we can learn a lot. Yeah. And there's no compromise whatsoever in recognizing we can learn from people, even while we have disagreements. Yeah. Um, I, I would imagine that one thing that you that you might have learned right away as soon as you started doing this venture is that many times, um, especially Catholics, because, of course, unfortunately, we just don't have as much engagement with the Orthodox Church here in the United States. Um, but but all of us grew up around Catholics and. I think that oftentimes there's a caricature of a Catholic, um, of Catholicism. And oftentimes, you know, we focus on the veneration of Mary and things like that. And we think that those concepts define our Catholic friends. What were some of the things that when you began to engage with these really intelligent and eloquent Catholics that you found began to crumble away, like as you started to kind of go, and, and, and obviously I think you had the understanding, the intellectual side of it, but, but what were some of the things that you found like, that you're like, well, you know what, maybe we've made too much of this inside Protestantism that that most Protestants think this about Catholics. And that just typically isn't usually the case. Yeah, you know, I could list a couple of examples, but I'm almost tempted to say that everything <laughs> that I yeah. had a perception of about Orthodox Christians and Catholic Christians, and then even learning about the other traditions. One of the things yeah. on my to-do list this fall is learning more about some of these other Eastern traditions, mm -hmm. other than the Orthodox that can sometimes be neglected. And I think learning about those is really interesting and raises lots of questions about the nature of the church and, and where the divisions are. But I would say every single major fault line that I have engaged, I found to be more complicated after more review and more dialogue. And one of the greatest burdens on my heart is to try to find a charitable approach that does not compromise, that does not disrespect the sacrifices of previous generations of Christians who have um, uh, struggled over these, these important things. And yet at the same time, to try to not caricature. I just feel this every, I was actually just thinking about this earlier today in trying to be strategic and thoughtful and whether I comment on YouTube comments on my mm -hmm. videos and yeah. think when it's really tough to know. Yeah. I, mean, I, I used to think never comment because that's just not a helpful platform, but I've kind of gotten to the point where I say, no, I think sometimes it's okay, but it's tricky to know when, but my observation was just how tribal we tend to be. We tend, and there's something about us that tends to clump up in our little group and then regard a different group in a way that is not charitable. And so because of that tendency, a great part of my burden for Truth Unites, which is my YouTube channel, is just to try to help uh, avoid that, push against that, because there's this polarization that's happening in our culture that I'm really worried about in, in terms of its long-term effects. And I think one of the greatest ways we can be followers of Christ right now is just learning how to disagree charitably. And, uh, and you know, that, that doesn't mean being soft in our disagreements. I, I believe we should go toe to toe in argumentation, but just learning how to do that without demonizing, without minimizing, without flattening out nuances, you know, while having an open heart to the other person, being willing to learn, wishing well upon the other person. It's very challenging. So, you know, I hope my YouTube uh, channel is helpful for people in terms of the content, but I often think even if the content doesn't influence, I just hope it could be a source of friendship, you know, because mm -hmm. that itself is a, is a win in my book. 
Yeah, I, I completely agree. And it, it, and you use that phrase, like disagree charitably. And the sad reality is like, typically you find that most people, especially in the world of YouTube and social media, is they pick one or the other. Either they are very heavy on disagreeing and openly, and they don't do it charitably. Or on the other side is you have people who refuse to disagree, even though they might internally, and they just seek to be charitable. And that kind of leads us almost to a relativistic viewpoint. Um, I, I found, and, and you tell me if you've if you found different, is I found that one of the most difficult things to get somebody to the point where they feel capable of doing that is that they don't even know how to discern which things are, you know, core doctrines, or you'll hear some people say like, you know, first tier issues and things like that. And then which things are, we are allowed to disagree on, but maintain communion and community. Um, how have you gone about advising people or even as you've ventured into this world where like you're talking to a Catholic priest or a Catholic theologian, you say, man, this guy's really brilliant um, and he has a great argument. How have you come about to discern, all right, this is something that I'm not willing to move on because of not only a conviction, but an intellectual side as well. And then the other things like how did you figure out how to discern that? Well, this is a big topic, so I, I don't <laughs> think I can give a comprehensive yeah. answer to this, but I, I, I have written a book called Finding yeah. the Right Hills to Die On that we talked about earlier, and that the first two chapters of that book are really all about this. It's all about the importance of not watering down doctrine. That's from mm -hmm. chapter two. And chapter one is all about the importance of humility and not finding our identity in our secondary and tertiary distinctives, mm -hmm. which is something I think can often happen where we feel superior to others because of our theology rather than finding our identity in Christ. And when we do that, when we know it's Jesus that makes me okay, fundamentally, I think that can lead to a different disposition uh, in the way we relate to others. And so it's again, that call to humility. Some of the principles in there that I appeal to in terms of how do we rank things would be, we're, we wanna look at scripture, uh, we want to look at what Christians have believed throughout church history. Uh, we want to look at how something logically relates to the gospel. And then we want to look at how it practically affects the church. And those are the four rubrics or criteria that I often find helpful to go back to. But it's important for me to say that there's no mechanical process. And that's, if I could sum up, if people don't ever pick up the book on theological triage that's fine the it's not a technical mechanical process yeah. it's it's something that we have to rely upon the holy spirit for it takes humility it takes and i'm a big believer in just patient listening you know just really careful listening because there's always nuances that make the opposing side more complicated than we might initially suspect yeah i think i think you're 100% correct. And just, and then even just in saying, Hey, there's really no mechanical way. Um, you know, you're a rare breed in that you are an academic and you're, you know, very adept at writing, but you're also pastoring as well. And, and you're the senior pastor. And, um, I, I, I'm sure that while you are routinely 
discussing and writing and even engaging with these, we, we've used the word tribal a few times now, it's like tribalism is, I'm sure that you've looked at your own congregation and evangelicalism as a whole and realized, of course, hey, we're as tribal as they come um, at times, unfortunately. Um, but it, it, you know, you brought up the tertiary, the secondary, it's those things that make us tribes and tribalism feels good. Do you think like some of the tribalism and the focus on secondary issues is because that is where we look around. We look at, if you go to a Presbyterian church, if you go to a Lutheran church, if you go to a Baptist church, in a sense, do you think we derive some of our identity as Christians from those secondary issues? Because that's, I mean, the group that we worship with every Sunday, those are the only things that really make us, us in a sense. And it's a failure to identify as a, from a, you know, more like what C.S. Lewis might call mere Christianity, the idea of like, hey, we're Christians first, Presbyterians or Baptists second. Do you think we derive the identity from the tertiary issues? Mm. I think we often do. I remember there's a John Newton quote that I referenced in the book that where he says, self-righteousness can feed on doctrines just as on works. And I really think that's true. We really can start to look down on others who have different views. And I think you're probably right that maybe to some extent, it's an issue of awareness and experience. For many Christians, they just have never met, you know, especially these Eastern traditions. Um, I was, gosh, I was probably in high school before I even really ever heard that there was such a thing as Eastern Orthodoxy. (laughs) And I was like, what? Why didn't anyone ever tell me this? You know, there's this whole other stream Mm -hmm. uh, that I just, you know, seems to have sometimes little contact. Yeah. So yeah, I think great. Sometimes one of the, I've often thought maybe one of the things the church can try to do to help the cultural dynamics right now and the polarization is just modeling dialogue mm-hmm. and creating venues for dialogue. Cause again, I think dialogue can be a good thing. And one of the things that I have been reflecting on lately that I think helps me when we, this is kind of a pastoral way of thinking about it. When we realize that we're becoming too tribal, we're becoming too focused on the secondary and tertiary doctrines, to realize it's not wrong that we have this intense loyalty to a right. cause. Mm-hmm. The problem is we're directing that to something other than Christ. And so the solution isn't just to kind of let go of everything, mm-hmm. but it's to reprioritize and that Christ would be the object. He's our tribe. Mm-hmm. He is the one to whom that intense feeling of loyalty is, is directed, and then everything else in doctrine finds its place in relation to him. And so that's kind of the North star that I try to aim for. Yeah, I I completely agree. I think, and and that's really, honestly, I I think what drives a lot of YouTubers and podcasters um, is the idea of, Hey, let's model dialogue too often. It becomes, you know, something that is anything but a good model. Um, so in modeling the dialogue, and I think that's what you're doing with your YouTube channel, I, I, what I really see in you, and I see especially in the, the forthcoming book, Why God Makes Sense in a World That Doesn't, is this idea maybe that, and I'm not, I'm not putting this on you that you think you're reinventing apologetics by any means, but it is certainly an, an attempt to say, hey, let's pause and let's, let's kind of reimagine what the pursuit of apologetics is and, and the implementation of especially these, these classical arguments what drives the desire there to to reevaluate and really maybe re not reword but kind of revisit these arguments which throughout the history of the church have been central to our our proof of of the existence of god what's driving that venture Mm -hmm. there's a number of things to some extent 
I would say in the modern era, it looks like some of the questions and challenges are a little different. Mm -hmm. So in, in some sense, a lot of the, the basic content of commending the Christian faith is always sort of has overlap and it's always sort of this, it's the same gospel. Mm -hmm. But if you think of like the problem of evil, well, that's always been a problem, but uh, modern science kind of complicates that a little bit. And so in, in some ways, there's just new questions on the table. But I'd also say that, and I think about this every day, and it's a huge part of why my, why, what I'm doing on YouTube, why I'm on there, is there is so much disintegration and deconstruction and despair out there. I'm constantly hearing about people who say, oh, I grew up in a youth group of 80 to 100 people, and almost all of them are deconstructing their faith right now. Yeah. I mean, I hear that over and over to the point where it's very alarming. And I even have felt that there's almost a sort of movement of deconstruction. Oh, 100%. Yeah. Um, so, you know, and I have a compassion for sincere uh, struggles with doubt. I understand what that feels like. So I want to help people who are there. So and this is what initially I thought I'd be focusing most on with YouTube because it's what I was writing on and it's where my heart is at is just apologetics. And I would say the particular mood right now, the particular uh, sense of despair and disintegration, I don't think it calls for a radically new approach, mm -hmm. but I think maybe just a, a shift of emphasis. And so my book really emphasizes the role of beauty in apologetics, mm -hmm. the role of story, and then the role of um, what are called abductive arguments, which just basically means more probabilistic arguments rather mm -hmm. than certain arguments. And yeah. so I just think for many people, especially younger people, uh, the the role of beauty um, can really be powerful. Yeah. Help people see, like the way I put it at the beginning of the book is, uh, uh, remember the feeling when you wake up in the morning uh, as a little boy and it suddenly hits you that it's Christmas morning mm. <laughs> or the first day of summer vacation and you think, oh, or remember when you're pursuing the person you love and you first realize, wow, they love me too. Okay, think of that feeling. And I'm, I'm trying to say, uh, that's a little bit a little taste of what it feels like to believe in the resurrection of Christ. Wow. Uh, after you've wrestled with a deconstruction or a nihilistic worldview, because there really is despair and darkness in that worldview. And I've stared down that well and seen that. And that is, gosh, again, I have compassion for the person wrestling there. But if you come back, as I have to say, there's really good reasons, solid reasons to believe in God and to believe in Christ. And boy, the sense of relief and joy at, the, at how much of a better story, more beautiful worldview that is, is infinite. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I've had uh, Andy Bannister on the show. I'm not sure if you're familiar with, with him. He's, he's an apologist and a writer and a speaker out of the UK. And um and he he said something that that really blew me away when we talked in, in what you just said, um, just that beautiful, beautiful exposition on beauty and, and that feeling that you get. Um, he, he was talking about the Extinction Rebellion and the the racial strife that we're seeing and identity politics and all of these things that Christians, especially evangelicals, are certainly guilty of right now of politicizing and driving us deeper into this tribalism, um, Andy said, you know what? I'm glad they're asking these questions. Um, like, I'm glad that they're asking these questions about race, race and ethnicity and gender and belonging and value and beauty 
And he said, because really the gospel is the only answer that, that can satisfy all of those, those questions. Do you think, and, and, you know, obviously the book is focused on this, but a lot of what you're doing, YouTube and all of your writing, and, and probably also, I, I just know as a pastor that what I do with all things, all people bleeds into what, what I preach on Sundays, you know, um, is it the sort of thing where, as you see what's going on in the world, where you're only fired up even more to say, you know what, the gospel really is the only thing that we could offer these people. Our tribes really isn't are, it, like the, the tertiary, the secondary issues are not what's going to appeal to these people. It's the heart of the matter. Is that one thing that's driving you in these things? Yes, I think that the sense of deconstruction and despair that is out there right now it's easy to simply be overwhelmed and discouraged and see it as nothing but bad. But I think your comments are so helpful in drawing out that there can be good results from that mm -hmm. in my own life, going through a process of mild deconstruction was mm -hmm. actually good. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it led me to a stronger faith. It gave me more compassion and understanding for others and what they're going through. I do feel that I'm a little bit better equipped to help and kind of mm -hmm. gently come alongside people with an understanding um, when they, in fact, that's a huge part of my pastoral heart for people. I think there's a lot of younger men, especially the women as well, who really are kind of lost right now. They're yeah. just searching. They just don't really know kind of, they have no sense of kind of transcendent bearings, you know, mm -hmm. they're just sort of unmoored. And they're just searching. And so I have a big burden to try to help them again, just reconstruct in, yeah, in, yeah. in some of the basics. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think that the needs of the time give us an occasion to present the beauty of the gospel mm -hmm. in, in greater relief. And because there's so much despair out there and grief, as many people are grieving loss of a loved one, um, perhaps that will give open doors to present Christ more honestly to people mm -hmm. in ways that they can understand, okay, this is really the difference that it makes if you have the hope of everlasting life. Mm -hmm. So when you're, when you're engaging, you know, over a call like this, that's eventually going to be YouTube video or, or you're debating somebody on, you know, the view of justification and atonement, maybe they're a, a Catholic, um, does, does this idea of like, Hey, th these people are, there's so many people in the world who are, are facing despair and grief. Um, are you, are you sort of kind of like, well, maybe just by showing that within the church, we're having conversation, we're, we're dialoguing, we're modeling what it means to disagree and to disagree vehemently at times. Um, but love one another like mm -hmm. is is even just the approach to these and some of them aren't secondary at all i mean justification and atonement are first and foremost that was the formal matter really of, of the the reformation in general but like is is just the winsome approach in your mind an apologetic in itself for somebody who might stumble on your video and go you know those christians don't seem that bad yes I very much believe that. I think about this a, a great deal of the time that it's not just what we say that mm -hmm. constitutes our witness and our ministry. It's also how we say it and how we treat people. And when we're talking with our Catholic and Orthodox friends, uh, we have important differences. As you mentioned, we have some differences that touch very close to the essence of what is the Christian gospel, but we also have common ground. And one of the points of common ground is we all believe God became a baby. Yeah. Now, 
how can we think that God became a baby and then turn around to each other and upbraid one, one another with rebukes and with misunderstandings and with impatience and so forth? Um, it, you know, in other words, the common ground we have is sufficient to help us talk to each other humbly. We have all the reason in the world to talk to each other with charity. And I do believe there will be people listening into our conversations who are not sure of anything and they're confused and disillusioned. And maybe all they will be able to hear is love. Mm. If, if we speak to each other with love, they will be able to hear that. And maybe that's the only thing that they'll yeah. hear. Yeah. So it's so important. Um, you've had so many conversations now and you've put out so much content on YouTube. And, and as I've mentioned a few times, you, you write at a serious volume and in a, in a high level, what has been the conversation, um, that you've been able to have with, you know, one of these people outside of Protestantism that has, that has proven maybe one of the more difficult ones to, to navigate. Uh, many of the people that you're engaging with are, are high level thinkers. And it's not like a simple, um, five minute apologetic video on YouTube, um, that says, Oh, this, you do this one little apologetic argument and you're going to destroy their worldview. You and I both know that's just not true. Um, what, 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 what conversation has been the most academically intellectually difficult for you to navigate as you ventured into the, the YouTube world? Mm, that's a good question. I'm not sure which one I would identify exactly, but in general, I would say learning about Eastern Orthodoxy has been the steepest learning curve yeah. because there's such differences culturally and in terms of language and in terms of history that make the theological differences. You just always have this worry, like, am I really understanding them? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so I actually had, uh, God really blessed me by allowing me to have some friendships with people who are Orthodox or formerly Orthodox mm -hmm. that I could just listen and, at, and call them up on the phone and they were gracious to give me time so I could ask them questions because I find reading books um, is obviously really important, but there's some remainder that mm. doesn't fully get, um, get there from just the books. I find if I can talk to people, there's uh, the cracks get filled in. Mm -hmm. And so just in my dialogue with Orthodox Christians, and like I said, I want to learn more about some other Eastern traditions as well but just listening to people has helped so much. So I did a debate with one Orthodox priest in May of this year, and I was very nervous that, um, do I understand this tradition well enough to do this debate yet? Yeah. And I mm -hmm. thought a lot about it before I agreed to do it. And ultimately I, I was encouraged by how it went. So I, I but, but going into it, I, I had that worry of, this mm -hmm. is, it's like two, two very, I mean, and it's actually amazing how little dialogue there's been between Protestant and Orthodox, not to say none, but really there hasn't been as much dialogue as you'd expect after yeah. being 500 years of history. Right. Yeah. Um, have you had many people who, who you've debated and had these conversations with um, who, who could tell the effort that you, you put into not straw manning their, their, their faith. And um, I'm sure that at times, like they might've even expressed some appreciation of saying, wow, Gavin, that, I, I kind of came in here thinking you were going to say all the things that I think Protestants say, and, and I can tell you really put in the work. Has that even been evident? Do you think in how you've uh, uh, interacted with these folks and, and have they shown any appreciation therein? They have, and people have been very kind. And the overall experience I've had on YouTube has been just one where I could state my gratitude because I mm -hmm. haven't 
received very much outright hatred. You, yeah. You, you get snarky comments and you get, yeah. you know, there's a lot of all of that, of course, but I've also met some pretty terrific people. You mentioned Austin Suggs and there's other mm-hmm. friends I've made on YouTube. And then in terms of Catholic and Orthodox uh, people, um, yeah, I, I do I do hear people who express that appreciation, but I want to keep growing it because my feeling is it's kind of a continual lifelong process of learning mm-hmm. um, the other side. And so I, mm-hmm. I never want to get complacent in that and think, oh, I'm yeah. already doing that. It's kind of right. like, no, where do I still need to keep learning? And that's mm-hmm. kind of what I come back to. And one person I just did a debate with, Swan Sana, was gracious enough to invite me back on his YouTube channel just for a fun get to know you. And I thought- oh, wow. What a great, um, what a great thing that is to be able to debate, and that's how I always say it to people: is let's debate each other in such a way that we could go out for a beer afterwards yeah. and just hang out, you know? Yeah. And so I, I love that thought that we can still be friends. I've had so many apologists on this show, and I've you, I mean, honestly, I'm not even you know putting you on. I think you're probably the third or the fourth person I've heard say that. You know, I've had uh, Justin Brierly on the show from uh, Unbelievable. Um, with a uh, premier. And then, like I mentioned, Andy Bannister, so many people and the ones who I really, really greatly respect are the ones that offer that sentiment. Is that like, um, I don't care if it's the, the, the most atheist, um, you know, nihilist person or a Catholic priest, like if, if we're not going into our conversations and even the debates with the idea that, Hey, I should leave this place. And that person still might want to know, like, know me. Um, if we're not doing that, I wonder if we're really on the right track at all, because it's not in, 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 um, Russell Moore said one time, he said, you know, I think part of the problem is every YouTube video you see in the apologetic world is titled, um, watch so-and-so own atheist college student, you know, with, with the moral argument or something like that, you know? And I think that's kind of part of our problem right now is that when people hear apologetics, they go, oh, the evangelicals are, are yelling at us again. You know, and, and, and so I think, I think honestly, the way you're doing it, the way Austin's doing it, um, and so many other people I've been privileged to talk to on the show, it's just like, no, like, let's, let's be a little quieter. Let's be slow to speak, quick to listen, um, rebuke when we need to rebuke, receive rebuke when we need to receive rebuke. And so I, I love the way you're doing it. And I think it's going to be a, a great blessing to not just Protestants, of course, but I really think more Protestants needs to, to, to listen to that, um, and I'm sure you probably ha- still have some stuff. Like, is there anything on the horizon with the YouTube channel that you're particularly excited about coming up? Yes, we're uh, so I'm in the middle of some dialogues with uh, Jordan Cooper, Dr. Jordan Cooper, who's a, a very thoughtful and, and respectful Lutheran uh, YouTuber. Mm-hmm. And he does a great job with his channel. So it's been a privilege to interact. We have one more remaining dialogue. After that, I'm going to do a dialogue with Jimmy Aiken, who's a oh, Catholic yeah. apologist. Yeah. We're going to dialogue about Sola Scriptura. We're just emailing about scheduling that maybe later this month. So I'm really honored to be able to do that as well. So those are kind of the next two things on the horizon. Jimmy, I don't know Jimmy, but he he's a tough one. Like, I mean, he's, um, uh, um, I can't remember the name of it. It's a Catholic apologists, um, but his, his, or, or his Catholic questions, like he, he is one that is a good example of like, hey, if you grew up thinking that Catholics are just, they're out there worshiping Mary and praying their rosary and they don't have a personal relationship with Jesus and they don't know the Bible. Let me introduce you to Jimmy Aiken uh, because that he really knows what he's talking about. So I'll be looking forward to, to seeing that one. Um, I, I mentioned you pre-show and I, and I, I hope it's not going to 
surprise you, but one thing I try and ask my guests when I can think about it, because I see, you know, I can see you, I see books behind you. Um, I know some of your personal story and I've watched some of, of, of your publications and, and things like that come out, but I always like to know who, who really is Gavin Ortland and, and what shaped him. So um, before I let you go, like if you were to just kind of name some of the influences, books, authors, people that you've known personally, who've really shaped who you are today and especially the way you think um, and, and, you know, and have led you to the point now where you're writing and pastoring and YouTube stuff and, and all that, who, who, and what would those influences be? Mm. Well, the, the first person that always comes to mind with a question like this in terms of an intellectual influence is C.S. Lewis, mm-hmm. which is not a very original answer. Everybody <laughs> says C.S. Lewis, but it's a test. It's, it's not because it's uh, not true. I mean, every, yeah. all of us have been influenced by him. And, and I go back to him over and over, and especially his fiction. And it's to the point where I'm somewhat obsessed with his fiction. I just, I have it on my phone as an audio version. And so a lot of times when I'm on a hike in the mountains here in Ohio, just um, listen to it. And there's something about the atmosphere of his fiction mm-hmm. that I just find comforting and I just find enriching. So I will go back to him again and again. And also his thoughts about heaven and the nature of joy. I would say I've never gotten over thinking about that. And so, um, yeah, more, more than anyone else, even in theology, that's one of the things that's interesting is he's his formal kind of training is in um, literature. And yet, he was such a good philosopher and theologian too. So I guess I have to join the ranks of people who've been influenced by C.S. Lewis. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Screw tape letters has become probably my go-to like gift book. You know, if, if I'm, if I'm looking to give a book to somebody who says, Hey, I, I, I'm looking for something to read. What would be a good thing is I, I've kind of become default almost giving screw tape letters. Cause I feel like it was almost prophetic too, of just some of the things that are detailed in there. Um, I feel like is, is not unique to C.S. Lewis's time in history at all. Um, and so, and, and then too, you know, we've not mentioned at, at any point, but um, of course, uh, you know, your, your family um, with, with Ray and, and your mom, Janie and, and Dane, um, you're surrounded by great influences. But honestly, when I look at the trajectory of what you're doing and what you've done and what you've written, um, you know, it's, it's funny that you, you name C.S. Lewis as, as chief influence, because um, it, it, I think one thing that gave him such staying power was the refusal to focus on just the fact that he was Anglican. Um, instead, he wrote a whole book that essentially defined many generations that came after him, mere Christianity. So I think that you're on a great trajectory with what you're doing with Truth Unites, because I think by going ahead and saying, Hey, let's find common ground, but then let's not stop there. Let's figure out why it is that we disagree on these these core issues and, and the, even the secondary ones. And so, um, I think God's going to continue to bless you. I, in fact, I'm 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 almost sure of it because it's like, why would He not bless the effort that you're putting in? Um, and so, I, I really appreciate what you're doing. It's a great encouragement to me, um, and I think it's only going to continue to grow. So, Lord willing, in due time, when you continue to do more and more exciting things, we'll have more opportunities to talk. Um, but until then, Gavin, I'm so appreciative of your time and everything you're doing for the kingdom. Thanks so much, Jeremy. Really enjoyed talking with you. Oh, 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 oh,